this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to the in focus podcast at the hindu where we cover all the latest news and views from india and around the world i'm narayan lakshman associate editor at the hindu and your host for today as russia's invasion of ukraine crosses the one month mark there have been calls for cessation of hostilities from across the world even as the devastating human and physical toll of the conflict has become increasingly clear while there's a glimmer of hope in the form of potential negotiations uh, between presidents uh, Volodymyr Zelensky and Vladimir Putin of Ukraine and Russia respectively some of the complex geopolitical questions underpinning this crisis including those relating to the role of NATO remain unresolved to help us parse through these critical geopolitical issues We have with us on the podcast today Surya Jayanti, a former US diplomat and energy advisor who served as the US energy chief at the US embassy in Kiev until 2020. She is now the co-founder of an alternative energy and decarbonization firm working in Ukraine and elsewhere. Surya, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. This is a pleasure and a privilege. Great. So, you were stationed in Ukraine during an important time. that spanned both the trump and the biden administrations uh what can you tell us about us policy there specifically in the context of the complex political situation between ukraine and russia at the time so starting in 2014 after the revolution of dignity also known as the revolution of maidan or shortened to maidan there became a very clear position in the united states in favor of supporting the democratic leanings of the government of Ukraine and the people of Ukraine. I think it's fair to say that that is based on two primary goals. One is a genuine desire to support the the growing democracy and western orientation in Ukraine. And the second is because Ukraine is an extremely important buffer state. in terms of keeping russian aggression checked from the european and nato perspective ukraine constitutes both the bottleneck where most russian aggression is directed before spilling out but also a really important stopgap a a cork in that bottle that keeps a lot of russia's hybrid aggression be it energy be it cyber be it what we're now seeing actually military aggression from spilling into the farther west into nato countries so the us has maintained since 2014 quite a strong position of support for ukraine in fact since maidan The United States has put about 4.5 billion dollars of technical assistance and foreign aid into Ukraine and helping support its reforms and development. Those are numbers that predate the military assistance and humanitarian assistance that have gone in now since the start of the invasion. So there wasn't a huge amount of change between and among different presidents in that respect. Ukraine has always been a very important geostrategic country for the United States and we have continued throughout the post-Maidan period to be very focused on supporting the country. There are obviously some distinctions between administration 1 and administration 2. We can get into those further into this discussion, but suffice it to say at this point that that Ukraine's importance 
to United States foreign policy cannot possibly be understated. Right. So, yeah, like you said, we can get into uh, you know differences over time in terms of the U.S. relationship with, with Ukraine. Uh, but specifically when, when you were there also, I think in the post, since the post 2014 period, Ukraine was seen as almost a strategic ally or a partner nation, at least of the U.S. And that included military aid. We did see some instances of, you know, Ukraine almost becoming a point of like political football between, you know, the parties in U.S. domestic politics. So do you think that maybe, um, you know, the, the view of Ukraine had greater significance even than just the sheer geopolitics of it. It, it, it echoes much more closely to it within Washington circles. It certainly came to, yes. I think it's impossible to talk about U.S.-Ukraine relations without noting that it did become a central feature in the Trump administration because of the events that led up to his first impeachment. And in that respect, absolutely, Ukraine was not merely a geostrategic imperative and not merely a partner in containing Russian hybrid aggression, but also came to be an instrument of domestic U.S. political back and forth. Right, right. So did you see that question of shift in terms of policy or attitude or the nature of the partnership with Ukraine? During your time there, did you see a sense of uh, maybe concern or tension within the relationships within the relationship uh, bilaterally with regard to what was happening vis-a-vis Russia, a third party, because obviously 2014 marked a point where it was an inflection point in a sense where you had previously a president in Ukraine who was more pro-Russian in his leanings, and then that shifted quite dramatically. Yet, I think, uh, you know, there have been numerous reports about, you know, people close to Russia within Ukraine who came under restrictions under President Zelensky, including uh, Medvedchuk. So was there was the U.S. recalibrating this relationship from 2014 onward? And what what effect did that have on the bilateral relationship? So it's it's important that I know that that this is my unofficial take on how things progressed. Uh, I am not giving the official U.S. position. And although here and there, what I say might line up with the official U.S. position, these are my own opinions. Uh, they happen to be quite well-informed opinions because of my time in Ukraine. But it's important to note that because there are places in which I do feel some of what has happened in Ukraine is a consequence of U.S. failures to take into account certain issues in Ukraine, but also failures to treat Ukraine as a country unto itself versus a political football here in the United States. So absolutely, to answer your question, there were shifts in how different administrations were dealing with Ukraine. The most notable shift, I think, has actually been from the Trump to the Biden administration. And that's because the impeachment scandal notwithstanding and Trump's effort to find non-existent dirt on President Biden and his son in Ukraine and to twist the Ukrainian government through withholding military aid into cooperating with completely 
baseless investigations into Biden and his family. That notwithstanding, the Trump administration was actually really quite supportive of Ukraine. And it wasn't a question of dividing the pro-Russia versus from the anti-Russia parts within Ukraine from each other. It was really much more of a question of supporting reforms and helping the country develop its own capacity to govern at the level at which it wanted to govern, to ensure its own security, be that national security or be that energy security or be that cyber security, and to also allow it to generate these more Western institutions, less Soviet institutions of democracy and governance than it had had under Yanukovych and going farther back. With the arrival of the Biden administration, there seemed to be a distinct deprioritization of Ukraine. That's probably not about Ukraine itself. That's probably, I think, more a question of the Biden administration deciding that it wanted to be more focused on China and less on Russia. Uh, I, I found this odd because I thought we could probably do both at the same time. But the end result has been that we did not pay Ukraine the kind of attention we had been paying it in the post-Maidan years up until that point. A, a symbolic example of this is the fact that Biden never nominated an ambassador to Ukraine. And I think that that speaks to a broader geostrategic reorientation. But as a practical matter, it certainly looked and felt to the Ukrainians like the, the U.S. attention had turned elsewhere. Abandonment's the wrong word, betrayal's the wrong word. Both of those are, are far too um, egregious sounding, but certainly a, a lack, a loss of, of prior, uh, prioritization. So part of what gets us to where we are now does appear to be opportunism on the part of Putin in sensing that perhaps the US was no longer quite as committed or able to protect. Ukraine from Russian hybrid aggression and hybrid warfare. That's probably a misunderstanding on one hand, because certainly we are doing an awful lot to support Ukraine. On the other hand, we aren't actually helping Ukraine in any immediate active sense. We're supplying it some weapons. We've blocked some other weapons from going over, so for example, the MiGs that Poland wanted to send. But we aren't have we don't have boots on the ground. There are certain types of assistance that we have not sent. We are refusing to put a no-fly zone in place. Ukraine has been trying to get into NATO since 2003. And rather understandably, it wanted to be protected from Russian aggression. And NATO, despite being an organization that, to be perfectly frank, is sort of intended to stop Russian aggression wouldn't let Ukraine in for a number of reasons that are partly Ukraine's fault, things like corruption, and partly probably just a desire not to have to save Ukraine if Russia ever attacked it, because it always seemed quite likely that Russia was going to. Nobody thought it was going to happen just now, in Ukraine at least, but it was considered sort of the ultimate inevitability. And NATO didn't want to have to defend Ukraine against it. 
So Ukraine has walked this interesting path among being embraced by the West, but not actually led into anything. Uh, lots of lots of money, lots of technical assistance, no NATO membership, no EU membership. And to be perfectly honest, I find it extremely unlikely that Ukraine will be an EU member for a very, very long time. And a number of other things where they, they hit a wall despite being hugged like family and then not let in to sit at the dinner table. Exactly. I mean, my, my next question was going to be on NATO, and you already answered some of that, um, which is to say, you know, why why have this sort of schizophrenic approach almost, which is just you're very welcoming, you're almost on the verge of granting membership, but then you pull back. When I say you, I obviously talk about NATO. Your own role as a senior diplomat who's worked in foreign policy and obviously seen some of the dynamics between the U.S. and how it works through NATO. Uh, was there not a sense that this was almost a formula to egg someone like Putin on in, uh, to to undertake an invasion? Was it not almost, uh, you know, setting up the situation for such a such an invasion? Uh, because it clearly uh, also added to the sense of insecurity uh, or anxiety on the Russian side, uh, which not only Putin but even before him, Yeltsin, and going all the way back since the early 1990s, uh, it has been a source of uh, almost structural concern for the for the Russian state. Well, let me be clear: nobody made Putin invade. This is not a, a Putin's terror campaign in Ukraine is not because America or NATO made him do it. That's categorical. This is a, a unilateral atrocity, and. Ukraine did nothing to provoke it other than exist and attempt to exist as its own country. It is true that if Ukraine had been led into NATO, NATO would have been obligated to protect Ukraine. It is also, as far as I can tell, just as true that that's why Ukraine has not been led into NATO, because NATO didn't want to have to protect Ukraine. Putin has had an obsession with getting Ukraine back as long as anybody who has been watching him can count. It seems to be ideological more than anything else. Certainly the historical comments that Putin has made to justify the invasion of Ukraine bear very little resemblance to actual history. For example, he seems to think that Ukraine is some wayward child, some prodigal son that has wandered off. And that's simply not a reflection of reality. Russia came from Ukraine and not the other way around. But it is a clearly deep-seated ideological issue for Putin. It's the best metaphor I've heard for it is an abusive husband who beats you and beats you, and eventually you develop the strength to get a restraining order and divorce him. You start dating a nice boy down the road, and your ex-husband beats you to death because if he can't have you, no one can. And Putin is very much the abusive ex-husband here. There is no justification for anything that is going on. But it is fair, nonetheless, to look at some of the history of how we got here. And it is completely fair 
to consider that from Moscow's point of view, NATO is a threat. And however much NATO has not actively threatened much of anything, it is nonetheless looking east from Moscow, excuse me, looking west from Moscow, the existence of a military alliance intended and designed to keep you in check. And when you have a bipolar view of the world in the sense of two superpowers, the US and Russia, which isn't actually how the world works anymore, but seems to be Putin's vision of it. Then when the other superpower, America, is putting weapons on your border under the, the, the aegis of NATO, sure, from Moscow's perspective, that does look like an untenable security issue. But Ukraine's not part of NATO, so that entire argument is nonsense. Ukraine has studiously not been led into NATO. So however much Putin can argue that NATO is some kind of national security threat for him, and I disagree, but from his perspective, I can see why he sees it that way. You can't lump Ukraine into it because it's not part of it, because NATO doesn't want Ukraine in. And Back to the reasons why, part of it, it seems to be a desire not to have to, to save Ukraine when an invasion like this one happens. But there are, there are issues in Ukraine that, that give rise to some of that resistance on the part of NATO as well. For example, Ukraine does have massive corruption problems. In fact, before the war started, Zelensky was in the process of rolling back most of the hard-fought reforms that had been put in place to reduce anti-corruption, uh, reduce corruption and, and enforce and instill anti-corruption norms, for example, at, at the state-owned enterprises and the National Bank, et cetera, et cetera. So issues like that are part of why Ukraine is not a member of NATO, part of why Ukraine is not in the EU. So it's it's a bit more complicated than Putin is suggesting it is. And in fact, most of what Putin is saying as justification is self-evident nonsense. But it is absolutely true that the existence of NATO has been part of what has pushed Putin over the edge into basically being a, a massive war criminal. There are other issues, though. Ukrainians always said that the minute Nord Stream 2 was completed, Putin would invade. That Nord Stream 2 was never an economic or an energy project. It was, from the beginning, designed exclusively as a way of bypassing Ukraine for uh, natural gas transit so that Russia could invade. They've been right. So when Biden rolled back sanctions on Nord Stream 2 last year, those of us who know Ukraine and know Russia and the energy issues and the geopolitics of that part of the world gasped with horror because there's no need for Nord Stream 2 under any argument. And meanwhile, it was a predicate to the invasion. 
nobody believed Ukraine, but they've been they've been proven sadly right. Okay, um, that makes sense. Uh, could you help us maybe look a little bit into the black box, at least to uh, some of us here, of Ukrainian uh, you know politics or political thinking, uh, Zelensky in particular, where, as you said, uh, maybe you know Putin didn't need an excuse or an invitation to invade. He had those designs and intents anyway. But given that, why would Zelensky, uh, you know, almost flirt with NATO so much? Because it sounds from what you're saying, that, like NATO made it clear as well that while they were happy to support in certain ways, or the US and, and other Western nations individually were willing to support, they there was no sense of welcoming them uh, to, the, to the membership round. So um, why wouldn't someone like Zelensky then calculate that it might be safer and avoid an invasion of the sort that we're seeing now to actually you know, speak more openly with Russia, have maybe fewer conditions or work out conditions that work for both countries, uh, which could stave off such a horrific, uh, you know, situation. Well, it's important to take this conversation away from the Zelensky aspect, simply because Zelensky came into power fairly recently and Ukraine's NATO efforts predate him by quite a few years, nor did they change when, when Zelensky came to power. So broadly speaking, it's a question of necessity for Ukraine. Ukraine has the massive, violent, dangerous bear, the abusive ex-husband on its border. Putin had already invaded the Donbass and was occupying it through proxy fake separatists. He had moved forces into Lugansk and Donetsk and pretended that they weren't Russian forces and was occupying it. He annexed Crimea and there have been other incidences. The troop buildup, one of the reasons that the Ukrainians did not view the troop buildup starting in sort of November, December of last year through to the invasion as necessarily indicative of an invasion coming is because to be perfectly honest Putin does that every year in late 2018 he moved warships into the sea of azov and closed the kerch strait down and petro poroshenko the president at the time had to declare martial law there have been troop buildups since then almost annually None of them reached the approximately 150,000 that were built up in advance of this invasion. But it's by no means unusual for Ukraine to be menaced by Russia. And then you add the cyber security attacks that have happened, and you add a number of other things like political destabilization campaigns, economic warfare, etc. And you get to the point of having no choice if you're Ukraine. You have to seek help. And here you have the countries of the West, the EU, the UK, the US, treating you like a favorite child to some degree, a slightly troubled, but nonetheless favorite teenage child. Would you not go continue asking those parents for protection? Of course you would. 
And I don't mean to suggest that Ukraine is the child of, of any Western state. It's not, right? But from the perspective of foreign assistance, the amount of foreign assistance and foreign aid and direct help and support that those Western countries were providing made it much more reasonable looking that maybe NATO would reconsider. And meanwhile, it's also not true that NATO wasn't embracing Ukraine. It was, it just wasn't letting Ukraine in as a member. But Ukraine has a representative to NATO. He's a member of parliament. They, Ukraine participates in many NATO functions and was trying to work that relationship towards membership because it had to. Because although each of those Russian buildups and each of those Russian aggressions did not result in a full-scale invasion, and although most Ukrainians did not believe that this one would either, there is the existential threat of Russia on the border, Putin denying Ukraine's right to exist, denying that Ukraine is its own country, clearly gnashing his teeth about taking it back, and meanwhile already has taken parts of it back and is occupying the East. Ukraine needs security guarantees. And that leaves it talking to NATO. And so, no, I don't think that the correct Ukrainian approach would have been to try to avoid antagonizing Putin. I think that what should have happened is that the, the Western countries should have let Ukraine into NATO because that's exactly what NATO is for. I think Ukraine's prospects of EU membership are extremely low because of, because of, uh, monetary and fiscal policy issues and rampant corruption. But NATO is a separate matter. And just as Ukraine has now been allowed to integrate its electrical grid with the European network, it should be allowed to join NATO. And it really has no choice but to ask. Uh, it should not live in fear of the abuse of ex-husband and never leave its house and never, never talk to anybody in case the ex-husband gets jealous. That's not a reasonable way to live, nor has Ukraine done anything wrong at any point in this process, at least with respect to its external relations. This is simply a question of Putin being obsessed and slightly perhaps deranged on the subject of Ukraine, and vicious and violent, vindictive, vengeful, and evil. Perhaps he's not in a broader sense, but with respect to Ukraine, I think it's pretty clear when you look at what's going on now that all of those words correctly apply to Putin vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine. Okay, that makes sense. Um, now that the situation is what it is and this invasion is going on, um, looking at, taking a step back, looking at the way forward, we're hearing initial uh, you know, signals that there may be a possibility of negotiation between the two countries. I'm talking about uh, Zelensky and Putin or their administrations. Do you think that some kind of uh, acceptable conditions on both sides can be found uh, such that there's a withdrawal of Russian military forces from Ukrainian soil? Are you hopeful about this or do you think it should go another way or it will go another way? I have pretty much no hope of a negotiated agreement. I think it's a fantasy because one, Russia doesn't ever negotiate. The part of what got us to the invasion was the Biden administration's 
slightly fantastical thinking that Putin was negotiating with them and that there were diplomatic solutions that could prevent this. Putin has never negotiated. If he even shows up at negotiations, it's never in good faith, and he always breaks any deal he pretends to sign. So there is that. It would be incredibly naive for anybody to think that any agreement Putin might agree to, he would plan to adhere to. Second, I think there's very, very, very little room for consensus, very little room for compromise on either side. So on the Russian side, I suspect that Putin has gotten himself in a situation where he's gone more or less all in on the invasion of Ukraine, to use a poker term, and he cannot afford not to win. If he goes back to the KGB cronies that constitute his inner circle and presents anything that is not a clear win, he is probably in quite considerable personal danger. Nobody has ever liked a loser in those circles. So the question then becomes, what is an adequate win for Putin to bring home and to parlay into a win that his people might accept? Well, Probably what he wants is all of Ukraine, but let's assume he can't do that because clearly he can't. And so maybe half Ukraine, maybe up to the Dnieper River, but obviously he doesn't have the ability to take that either. So maybe he's looking at some kind of land corridor in the south that would connect the, uh, the Donbass all the way through to Kherson or some of the other southern cities. Probably he doesn't have the military ability to hold that either. So it might be an official recognition of Russia's ownership over Crimea so that we drop the annexed uh, preface to Crimea when we talk about it. Independent recognized status for the fake Repu people's republics of Donetsk and uh, Lugansk in the east. Probably those count as a win, adequate to protect Putin at home. But he also wants neutrality. He wants some kind of guarantee that Ukraine will never join NATO. And all of those are more or less impossible for Ukraine to do. Ukraine cannot agree to neutrality because it's in Ukraine's constitution that it will join NATO. This is how serious this issue is for Ukraine as a national security, as an existential identity, self-preservation issue. It's in the Ukrainian constitution. So maybe Zelensky could get the constitution changed, but what that involves is two readings in the Rada, the Ukrainian parliament, at a supermajority level, 67%. And it also has to pass the Supreme Court there, the Constitutional Court. This takes a while. It doesn't necessarily have to. Hypothetically, they could do it in a couple of days. But the amount of political will that's required to do that is huge. 
So maybe Zelensky, because he's been such a transformational, inspirational military leader, a complete break with who he was as president, it's really quite extraordinary. And he deserves amazing credit for, for rallying and leading his people, regardless of his mostly failing history as a president before that. So maybe because of his newfound symbolism as the face of Ukraine, he has the ability to marshal enough votes in the Rada to get a constitutional amendment through. But I doubt it. And moreover, I very much doubt the Ukrainian people would be willing to support neutrality. Why would the Ukrainian people, having just given up their jobs and their homes to fight in back alleys with Molotov cocktails, to walk tens, if not hundreds of kilometers to get out of Ukraine to save their children, why would they agree to what may well look to most of them like capitulation? And Zelensky said he wants to hold a referendum to find out the will of the Ukrainian people in that respect. We'll see. I, it's possible that there are enough people who just want peace, but I doubt it. I think what we've all seen is the extraordinary fighting will and defiance and desire to protect their country of the Ukrainian people. So it would be a pretty seismic change for them to now turn around and say, oh, yes, go ahead, change the constitution. Let's just say we're neutral because we can trust Russia that if we say we're neutral, Russia won't do this again. But you can't trust Russia because Russia never keeps its promises and Russia never negotiates in good faith. So that's before we even get to the question of territories. Would Ukraine be willing to give up uh, the Donbass and Crimea, to which the answer is an absolute no. And as a consequence, the, the negotiations themselves are, there's very little room in the middle where some kind of agreement could possibly be reached that could be acceptable to both sides. Putin can't survive unless he wins, and Zelensky cannot capitulate, or he may well face an uprising by his own people for giving Putin their country after they fought this hard. I don't have, I don't think Zelensky actually wants to capitulate. I do think he wants peace. And I do think he is probably willing to make some concessions, but I very much doubt that his people want him to. And I very much doubt that the concessions he is willing and able to make are enough for Putin to be able to call it a win. So I have very little hope that the negotiations will lead anywhere. And even if they look like they are, I would be extremely skeptical and suspicious about Russia's intentions and reliability based on a long history of not adhering to its promises and agreements. So uh, in a practical sense, where does that leave us? Because on the one hand, you say that these two sides can't come together over negotiations and find any common ground. Um, and the war is, I mean, the invasion is, and the pushback from the Ukrainians is going to continue uh, until what happens? The whole country is devastated. Uh, what's the end game here? Unfortunately, yes, that seems to be the only likely 
future in the short and maybe medium terms. It's safe to say that the military situation is terrible on both sides. Despite all of our beliefs that the Russian military was strong and well-organized, well-equipped and well-trained, it's very clear that that's not the case. The estimates are as high as 15,000 Russian troops uh, injured or killed. The number of, they've, they've lost half of their, uh, their, their um, pilots. They've lost a huge amount of their equipment. Their supply lines are almost comically dysfunctional and broken down. But the situation's not that much better on the Ukrainian side either. Uh, the number of casualties on the Ukrainian side are much, much higher than what the Ukrainian government is admitting to. And partly that's normal, right? That's just a, a way of maintaining morale. But we appear to have reached a point where it is a low, bloody war of attrition. Russia will keep bombing. This, in the city of Mariupol, over 80 percent of buildings and structures are now in rubble. Kiev's in better shape, but for how long, who knows? Kharkiv is devastated. Chernigiv is devastated. Some of the other cities are in trouble. Maybe Russia has enough rockets to keep shelling and keep bringing the cities down, leveling them and raising them and killing civilians. Russia is hitting intentionally hospitals, schools, cultural institutions, housing women and children in shelters. It's hitting civilian infrastructure. It's stealing the buses of humanitarian aid convoys. It seems to be a desperate attempt simply to terrorize the Ukrainian people into running away and giving up. It is a genocide. This is an effort to stamp out Ukrainian identity and the existence of the state and people of Ukraine. And Putin has been quite clear about that. Putin doesn't have enough soldiers for this to continue, but there were, there were reports that Bashar al-Assad had agreed to send some 40,000 people to fight. Unclear if that is going to happen. It's possible he institutes some kind of, of national draft. Most of the soldiers he's sent to Ukraine appear to be young, very inexperienced, and most definitely lied to. They didn't know they were being sent to war. Many of them seem to have been told they were being sent to training. Some of them have surrendered. Some of them have deserted. Quite large numbers, I think, in both cases. And lots of them have died. I think this continues to be a war of mass atrocity against civilian populations. Where that leaves us is nothing but a tragedy. It's always possible Putin reaches a level of frustration and desperation that he uses tactical nuclear weapons or he uses chemical weapons. There is a fear of that. And certainly the intelligence that the U.S. and possibly the EU, but I haven't, I can't actually say I've seen that. But certainly the US intelligence that has been made public is that they think that's a very real possibility. And some of Putin's advisors in recent days have refused to rule it out. 
So we might be reaching that point. I would love to have a more hopeful message about this, but without actual military assistance, Ukraine does not have the ability to win decisively. And without military reinforcements from outside Russia, Putin does not have the ability to win decisively. All Putin has is the ability to destroy. And if I were in charge, I would absolutely put a no-fly zone in, and I wouldn't stop, for example, Poland sending MiGs in to, to reinforce the Ukrainian Air Force. Until we make decisions like that, we, the United States, but also we Western countries, we NATO countries, rather, this will just drag on with higher and higher civilian casualties and greater and greater refugee numbers. I just hope that there's a Ukraine to save at the end of it. So given this situation, again, taking a step back, uh, what's your prognosis for how the Biden administration and maybe even a future U.S. administration will deal with Russia? You spoke at the beginning about deprioritization that happened, the comparison to China and so forth. Um, obviously, this is, you know, brought Russia back front and center on the agenda, but what's going to be the formulation or the lens through which Washington, the White House, will see Russia going forward? That's a very interesting question because it depends so much on how this ends, if it ends, right? So let's say hypothetically that it ends with regime change in Russia, that Putin has made himself look too weak to his KGB inner circle, and they off him because they don't want a loser who's dragged them into a quagmire and destroyed their entire national economy. Well, then it depends a little bit on what comes next and who comes next. If it's just a different KGB crony who takes the reins of Russia and very little changes, then I can't imagine that the United States is going to dramatically change its position, at least in the short term. If regime change in Russia results in some kind of civil war, that's a completely different scenario. If it results somehow in a positive development, who knows, maybe Navalny becomes president of Russia, right? Seems unlikely, but one can hope. Then maybe Western support for rebuilding Russia becomes a critical piece of, of the collective Western foreign policy. Certainly, Russia is going to need to be rebuilt. And at some point, it's going to have to be removed from isolation. It has to be. We have to have a new Marshall Plan to save Russia from the consequences of Putin's actions. We cannot let an entire people of a large and critical country suffer to the point at which we breed our own World War three, if this isn't World War three, but World War four, 40 years down the line, when those people have grown up and have neither forgotten nor forgiven. But something like 80, 85% of the Russian population supports what Putin is doing. And to some degree, that's a question of mis and disinformation. They have few sources of information that isn't essentially just Russia Duma propaganda, Kremlin propaganda. And what that propaganda is telling them is that Ukraine attacked Russia, Ukraine is bombing itself, 
Russia is protecting itself. This is all the West menacing us, and we are in a holy war. Most people in Russia believe that, and most people support what Putin is doing. So what needs to happen with respect to Russia is a lot deeper than just helping them rebuild an economy. It's going to have to be a complete cultural sea change about information and how it's absorbed. Several generations are almost certainly lost. There's no way we're going to teach a babushka in Novgorod, for example, that yes, Russia invaded Ukraine and committed atrocities that would make Hitler giggle, but maybe we can get to the younger generations. Maybe in the same way that exposure to the better life that was being led in the West for Russians in the Soviet Union contributed ultimately to the fall of the Soviet Union because they realized that they were being lied to inside and that things could could be better. Maybe that will happen. But one way or another, the West is going to have to help rebuild Russia too. What our foreign policy is beyond that will depend very much on who is running it and which direction they're running it towards or in rather. Uh, with respect to Ukraine, the amount of money it's going to take to be, rebuild Ukraine is going to be astronomical. I've seen estimates of the current level of damage that run anywhere between 120 billion and 500 billion for the amount of damage that's been done to Ukraine. How many of the 5 million refugees that are now estimated to have left will come back? Probably not that many. Ukraine still has a population of, of in the high 30 millions. It's a very well-educated population. It's a hard-working population. So it will have the human capital to rebuild, but it's going to require a huge amount of assistance. And I hope even though Western governments have refused to help Ukraine, have refused to save it, are, as Zelensky has pointed out, leaving Ukraine to fight their war against Russia to protect Europe from Russia all by themselves. Perhaps we will at least make it up to them on the back end. I don't know. It also depends a bit with what happens in energy markets. If the EU finally decides to institute, if not a full embargo, much stronger sanctions or reductions of reliance on Russian hydrocarbon and other energy sources, that may well have a sufficient and permanent effect on energy markets and the energy transition that a lot of what Russia was running on anyway ceases to be available. If enough of the world, for example, moves to renewable sources, or if hydrogen becomes a reality in the next five years, for example, such that the 36% in 2021 of Russia's national budget that was based on uh, oil and gas exports is no longer even an option because nobody wants all of those oil and gas exports because they have greenified, so to speak, then 
the future of Russia looks very different either way. That will also have a big impact on what Western foreign policy is towards Russia. So much of that policy in recent years has been energy related, that if energy shifts in a deep way, and, and it is, and it will, then by definition, whoever is in charge of Russia and whatever direction Russia is moving in, the relationships will be different between Russia and the West. Okay, um, that's fantastic. So thank you so much for sharing your deep insights with us on this subject of enormous contemporary relevance. And that wraps up this episode of In Focus. Uh, stay tuned to www.thehindu.com for more podcasts, videos, and articles that analyze and explain the most important news stories of our time. Uh, but for now, again, thank you very much, uh, Surya Jayanti, for joining us on this episode. Thank you very much, and I hope that this crisis ends quickly. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.